calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Are you enjoying this free audiobook from Scribble.com? You may not know that Scribble has much more than just free audiobooks. Audiobooks, ebooks, we're adding new titles all the time. You can skip these ads and get higher quality audio files by purchasing audiobooks on Scribble. Even better, every audiobook you buy from Scribble comes with the ebook at no additional charge. Visit us at scribble.com. That's S C R I B L.com. Now, Back to the show. Welcome to the serialized short story audiobook Blood is Red, written and performed by author Scott Sigler. Get the stories in Blood is Red for all ebook readers from scottsigler.com slash blood is red or from that same page as a full-length audiobook. You can also buy the Blood is Red ebook directly from the Kindle Store, the Nook Store, Apple's iBooks, and from Google Books. This book contains harsh language, adult situations, and lots and lots of violence. So if you're easily offended, fire up some Justin Bieber instead and enjoy. Iowa Typhoon by Scott Sigler I remember I laughed the first time Bobby said it. Bobby's my brother. I live with his family over on Sullivan Street. I should call him Bob, that's what he prefers, but he'll always be Bobby to me. It sounded as if he were joking. I mean, who ever heard of a typhoon in Iowa? Absurd, wouldn't you say? But that's what he said. I do remember it, although only vaguely. It seems the longer I stay here, the less I remember about before, and the less I want to leave. I suspect the latter part, about the leaving, I mean, is already a moot point. I like it here too much. Fender's Point is my home now. Yes, I can call it that. My home. I wouldn't dream of living anywhere else. Sure, I miss Boston sometimes, although less and less lately. Actually, I'm not sure that I've stopped missing Boston as much as I've stopped remembering the things that made me miss it in the first place. Does that make sense? I don't know if it does, but bear with me. This is an interesting story. At the rate things are slipping away... The things from before I started living in Fenner's Point, I mean, I I need to just rattle on and get it all out. But then again, you reporters love to listen to people ramble, don't you? From the Boston Globe, you say? Well, it's nice to see a face from Beantown, although to tell you the truth, I don't remember any of the faces I knew while I lived there. You'd think that would bother me, forgetting everything from before, but it doesn't. Well, not much, anyway. Not as much as it used to. You're starting a new life here, Kevin. That's what they tell me. A new life. And you know what? They're right. I just got a job down at Harvey's Hardware. 
Old Harvey's youngest son, Jacob, I, I think it was, he had an accident during the last typhoon. We all miss him, but he's gone now, and there's work to be done. Accidents happen, you know, especially during the rainy season. Now, you might think that stocking shelves in a hardware store is boring compared to being a famous professor of anthropology at Boston College, but it's not. I know that's hard to believe, but I like my new job. I like it a lot more than the old job, as a matter of fact. I used to treasure my professor status, but it all seems so long ago that I'm not sure what all the fuss was about. This, this is better. Simpler. I'm much happier here. My wife Martha would be, too, if she was still around, but, you know, accidents happen. As I said, now I live with Bobby in his daughter Vicky's old room. Sure, the clown wallpaper is a trifle annoying, but she was a kid for crying out loud, so I don't mind that much. The room's empty, Bobby said, so why don't you just stay for a while? And I did. And I hadn't heard a peep from Boston until you showed up, although I don't know why you'd come all this way to talk to a simple hardware store worker. So, as I was saying, I called my little brother Bobby a while back. I'm not sure how many weeks or months. Those words don't mean so much anymore. We measure the time by the rainy seasons and the dry seasons. People who aren't from here get a little confused, but Fender's Point residents understand each other. So anyway, I called my brother and told him I wanted to visit. I hadn't seen Bobby in years, not since Dad's funeral. It's not our fault, you know. We do love each other. It's just the distance and distractions kept us apart. Bobby worked at the little military research facility in Fender's Point, which is supposed to be a secret, but we all know about it anyway. And I was always busy at the college. For the past ten years, I was off on one dig or another as soon as school let out. I don't remember the dig locations, but uh, there was usually a great deal of sand, and it was god-awful hot. It's much nicer here. The climate always seems to agree with you. As long as you stay out of the rain, of course, but that's just good old Midwestern common sense. But this summer, I had no digs lined up. I remember something about our funding being cut off, but the details are a little fuzzy. That was before, you know. Out of the blue, I called Bobby and asked if he'd like me and Martha to come visit. Come visit? Bobby said. Yes, I said. We haven't seen you in years. I want to see my baby brother Bobby and his kids. You can call me Bob, he said, as he always does and I always ignore him. We'd all love to see you, Susan and the kids especially. Then he said something that I'll never forget. It was the funny thing I told you about before. You know, the one I laughed at? I should have known better. Bobby never did have much of a sense of humor, even when we were children. Why would you want to come out now? he asked. It's the middle of typhoon season. Well, I thought that was a pretty good joke, as I've said, and I didn't think anything of it. Typhoon schmyphoon, I said, and told him we were coming out. I remember the other thing that he mentioned. It should have rung some bells, too, but I just didn't get it. Not many people from outside Fender's Point get it. Okay, he said, but it's your funeral. I can cut out most of the part about the trip here. Not much to say. Martha and I saw all the sights. It's funny, but in all my years of burying my nose in the sand, I never bothered to take a look around America. It's a nice place once you get out of the city. Quite fascinating. Martha and I both agreed that the drive here was beautiful. Did I tell you that we saw the world's largest ball of tinfoil on the way? I don't remember what town that was in, but how can you forget 
a 15-foot-high ball of tinfoil. Martha and I drove all the way out here, stopping as often as we pleased, sometimes just to walk in fields and pick flowers, sometimes just to sit in the shade of a tree and hold hands. It was a nice trip. Martha and I hadn't done anything like it in a very long time. Like I said, I don't remember many details about that trip, but I do remember that she always looked so beautiful in the summer sun. We didn't know what beautiful was, however, until we arrived in Fender's Point. Birds chirped in the trees. Little unpolluted clouds graced a flawless pale blue sky. Trees exploded in the ember glow of early summer. The place was absolutely stunning, vibrating with life and charm. More like a picture book than an actual small town. I know I sound a little pretentious with my descriptions, but just look at this place. Brings out the poet and all of us. And the people. My, 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 they were so nice. We all say around here that it's the people who make Fender's Point such a nice place to live. Of course, we all know that's not the truth, but it's still a fitting thing to say. Well, just look around. I don't need to tell you how beautiful it is, do I? Not when you're looking right at it took our breath away. We hadn't seen small-town America in, I guess, a, a few decades. Hell, we didn't even have a car when we lived in, uh, Boston. I used to pronounce it ka, but this Midwestern twang is so contagious I've lost my accent. Didn't even own a car. Can you believe that? We rented one for the drive out here. In Boston, we took the T everywhere we needed, and Amtrak got us to the airport. Didn't need a car at all. We didn't know what we were missing, I can tell you that now. Martha liked it here. I miss her, but her memory is fading. Someday soon, I won't feel any more hurt. That will be nice. We got to Bobby's house, and the kids were so big. Bobby Jr. had changed into a burly teenager since the last time I'd seen him. His black hair framed a face with only a hint of boyhood left in it. His strong cheekbones and chin perched over a thick neck. Bobby Jr., who was already bigger than his dad, was rapidly becoming a man, his body free of fat and his muscles thick in the prime of youth. He looked just like his father had at that age. Bobby Sr., of course, now had the lines of middle age gracing his plump face, and his fat-free days had long since gone the way of butterfly collars and disco. Victor, a Vicky's twin brother, he had grown from a toddler to a bundle of ten-year-old energy. He had his father's dark eyes, but his mother's glowing blonde hair, as pure as the wheat fields that spread out around Fender's Point. He clutched a teddy bear and couldn't stand still for even a second. He didn't remember us, of course, but he was so excited to meet family. God, but those children were beautiful. Martha and I never wanted to have kids. Now that she's gone, I might change my mind. Goodness knows there's plenty of widows in Fender's Point, if you know what I mean. Oh, sorry, that's an inside joke. Never mind. So anyway, I asked where little Vicky was, and you know what? Bobby just stared at me, like he didn't know what I was talking about. It took him a few seconds to remember his own daughter. Vicky? he asked, his eyes blankly staring at me as his brain tried to dredge up the name. Vicky. Oh, yes, my daughter, right? I remember thinking that Bobby's newfound sense of humor was getting pretty good, but the next thing he said told me something was very wrong. Vicky passed on. Bobby said it matter-of-factly like it was nothing significant. Passed on, I said, thinking that I was missing something because he still had a grin on that chubby face. You don't mean... Dead, Bobby said. 
That smile never left his little boy face. She's dead. I think it was two rainy seasons ago. Accidents happen, Kevin. You should know that. Come on inside and let me show you the house. Susan is dying to see you. The man talked about his dead daughter so casually, and he actually tried to pretend he didn't remember her. She was dead, and he'd never called me for the funeral, never even called to let me know. I remember thinking that I had some friends in the psychology department who could help my dear old brother deal with his loss. His denial was obvious. Martha and I exchanged a look I won't forget for some time. That little look we exchanged said a lot, and the main thing it said was that we shouldn't bring up little Vicky's demise, for a while at least. Bobby would tell us about it in his own good time. Susan looked as radiant as ever, with her long blonde hair tied back in a ponytail, the same as she always wore it with the exception of her wedding day. I'd stood as best man, of course. Next to Martha, I admit she was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. Bobby caught her in his college days when she was a cheerleader and he was a quarterback. Now, I wouldn't call him a star, mind you. The team went 2-9 and nine his senior year, but he was a quarterback nonetheless. The Storybook Couple To this day, they're as happy and loving as two people can be. In fact, the whole family looked happy, happier than they had ever looked when Bobby worked in Boston. And healthy. They all looked healthy, like there was a a light inside of them shining as brightly as the North Star in a clean, lightning-free night. It was a little unsettling to see them this happy, but Martha and I both knew it was only because we'd just heard about little Vicky. They'd obviously come to terms with her death. Well, I suppose you want to get to the meat of this story, eh? You'd like to hear about the typhoons, why I left college, or vanished, as you put it, and how I came to live here. In due time, in due time, we're almost there, so be patient. Humor an old man telling a little story. We spent two days in Fender's Point. With Bobby Jr. and Victor out of school for summer vacations, we had a wonderful time as a whole family. We enjoyed a big barbecue on Saturday and a great day at Emerson Beach on Sunday. You'd like Emerson Beach. Very clean, hundreds of yards of sand. Peach Lake is on the edge of town, but it's still in Fender Point proper. We're proud of that beach. It sure adds to the town's image, don't you think? Bobby Jr. was such a nice young man. So polite. I remember Martha commenting that the local girls must be chasing him all around town. And funny? Oh my, that child had Martha and I in stitches the whole time. He may have looked like Bobby Sr., but Bobby Jr. had a delightful sense of humor that never graced his father. Susan and Martha had always been such good friends when Bobby lived near Boston. They slipped back into the old friendship like they never parted, chatting in whispers and giggles, as if they were still teenagers talking between classes. Susan was always so sweet. I still couldn't tell suggestive jokes without her turning red and sometimes leaving the room. It's adorable how she gets so embarrassed. I told most of my good dirty jokes to Bobby Jr., who always countered with one even dirtier. I would have admonished him if I hadn't been laughing so hard. Boys will be boys. My favorite part of that wonderful weekend, though, was little Victor. God, but wasn't he just a little trooper? I played catch with him for hours and hours, helped him build a Lego city, read him his picture books. We made sandcastles at the beach. He never said much and was very shy, but he latched onto his Uncle Kevin in a big way. Wonderful kid. I remember putting him to bed one night and what he said. I love you, Uncle Kevin. 
Victor said in his tiny voice, all curled up in his pajamas covered with pictures of firemen and fire trucks. I love you lots. Well, as you can imagine, my heart just melted. It was probably the most he'd said to me at one time since I'd arrived in Fender's Point. Kid doesn't talk much, probably because of the loss of his twin sister. I still play with him every day. Except, of course, when it rains. Victor still doesn't handle that very well. After the third day, Martha and I decided that we wanted to see more of the country. We were falling in love all over again. Not that we'd ever fallen out of it, mind you, but I'd been so busy with the college and she'd been so busy with her medical practice that we hadn't spent any serious time together in ages. She came up with a crazy idea. Drive to the West Coast, see the country along the way, hit California, and then fly home. It sounded like a wild, impetuous idea at the time, something two college kids might try. Not something that two prestigious 40-somethings would do. So, of course, we decided that was the plan. We knew we weren't young, but we weren't ready to be old, and that spontaneity seemed like a great way to cling to some priceless youth. The weather grew dark that afternoon when I told Bobby we were leaving. He looked concerned. He thought the trip sounded wonderful, of course, but then he said something weird. It sure sounds like fun, but why on earth would you ever want to leave Fender's Point? We want to see the country, I told Bobby. He gave me that blank stare, the same as when I'd first asked about Vicky. He didn't say anything this time, just shrugged his shoulders, like he simply couldn't understand us. We packed, sneaking in a few kisses and gropes in Vicky's old room. The room gave us the creeps a little bit, being the room of our dead niece, but not enough to make us forget each other's bodies. We were going to a hotel. I believe we planned on making love all night, sleeping in, and eating room service all day. We were taking our bags to the entryway for the big round of goodbyes when I saw Bobby shut the front door and turn the handles on at least ten deadbolt locks. The house had grown dark, and not just from the overly cloudy skies outside. Every curtain and shade was tightly drawn. Some were sealed shut with duct tape against the outside light. I was more than a little concerned, both why he needed that much security and how I hadn't noticed the locks earlier. I also hadn't noticed the guns that lay in parallel on the kitchen table, although since then I've learned we keep them in the hall closet. One was a nasty-looking shotgun, and the other was some kind of hunter's rifle with a thick black scope mounted on top. Several boxes of shells sat by each one. Bobby, I asked him quietly, what are you doing? He turned and looked at me quizzically, as if I were stupid. Locking up. Forecast says there's a storm coming. I realized I was holding Martha's hand very tightly, and I relaxed my grip. Well, could you unlock the door? I asked him. Martha and I want to get on the road. Oh, you don't want to go out, Bobby said. You don't want to get caught outside on a day like this. His eyes flashed. The little light inside him was gone, replaced by something just as powerful but much darker. A ratcheting, clicking sound distracted me, and I turned my eyes to the kitchen table, where Bobby Jr. was loading the shotgun. His hair dangled in his face, but I could still see his eyes glittering with that same darkness I had seen in his father. A sneer crossed his lips. His teeth showed slightly. He looked like a wild animal, like a predator. You fucking bitch! A tiny voice screamed in the living room. Martha and I turned to a sight that made us think, well, I guess we didn't know what to think. Susan was tying little Victor to a chair. 
The ropes she used were coarse and fibrous and brown. A trickle of blood ran down his foot from his ankle, where the tight ropes cut through his skin. Victor pulled at them, trying to get away. His right hand was free, and he tried to claw at his mother's eyes, fingers pointed like little talons. You fucking cunt, little Victor said. It sounded so surreal to hear such a harsh word erupt from a ten-year-old mouth. Well, Susan, she was having none of it. She brought her left hand up in a vicious straight jab, rocking little Victor's blonde head back. Not a slap, mind you, a jab, like the boxers do. Blood poured from his nose. As he blinked away the pain, she tied his arm down tight, the chorus rope digging deeply into his young pink skin. Breathing through the dripping blood, he started making little animal noises. His eyes were full of death and hate. I remember turning to look at my brother, who didn't seem the least bit concerned that his wife was smacking his son around, tying him to a chair. Oh, don't worry about Vic, my brother said with a grin, as if this kind of thing happened every day. He gets a little uppity when the typhoons come. We lost Vicky during a typhoon. I think he acts like this because they were twins and he's still so close to her. The typhoons affect everyone a little differently anyway. We just tie him down and he's fine when the storm passes. I felt as if I'd been tossed into an insane asylum, or that loonies had come and spirited my brother and his family away and replaced them with other loonies that looked just like them. I remember speaking very quietly. Martha took a step behind me, pressed right up against my back. Bobby, I said, we want to leave. Now. I stared into his deep black eyes with conviction. He looked so thick with evil. If I hadn't been the older brother, used to bossing him around, his superior for so many years, I doubt I could have met his gaze at all. I didn't know what was going on, and at that moment I didn't care. All I cared about was getting Martha out of there. There were loaded weapons in the house, and people who at least as I saw it then, seemed a bit less than stable. I recommend against that, Kevy Webby. I really do, Bobby said. He used a name he hadn't used since we were kids, and he wanted to irritate me. I looked him straight in the eye. I didn't have to say anything. He knew when his older brother was serious. Okie dokie, Kevy Webby, Bobby said with a sneer, turning to unlock the ten thick deadbolts. It's your funeral. He finished unlocking the door, but he didn't open it. Junior, bring the shotgun and cover your Uncle Kevin and Aunt Martha until they get out to their car. But, Dad, Bobby Jr. said in a protesting teen's voice, it hasn't even started thundering yet. There's no lightning. I know, son, but we don't want to take any chances with family. Just do what I ask you. Bobby Jr. picked up the shotgun and perched himself with his back to the edge of the door, commando style, waiting for his father to open it up. Martha and I just stood there with our bags hanging heavy from our hands, mouths agape at the psychotic surrealism before us. Go, my brother shouted, and he opened the door quickly as Junior jumped outside, shotgun leveled against whatever unknown threat might be hiding in their driveway. I stood still for only a second, I remember, before thinking that this might be our only chance to get out of there alive. I ran for the door, dragging Martha behind me. We each held only one bag. Luggage and clothing didn't concern us at the time. We just wanted to get the hell away. We got to the car, tossed the bags in the trunk, and jumped inside. We wouldn't have looked back, 
except that the front of the car pointed towards the house. As I started up the car, we took one last look. My brother's face peeked out from the front door. My bulky nephew perched like a shock trooper, his eyes slowly scanning the front yard, the gleaming black barrel of the shotgun following his gaze. I backed out of that driveway with squealing tires and the smell of burned rubber. I ground the gears trying to find first. We drove away. Only an hour ago, you'd have called the street cozy or quaint. Now, dark storm clouds darked across the sky. The street seemed trapped in a perpetual purple twilight. Wind whipped up out of nowhere, tearing at trees and scattering healthy leaves and little waves and whirlwinds. That's when the first blast of thunder rocked the car. It was on us just that quickly, that storm. Or should I say that typhoon? That's what we call them around here, you know. Oh, I told you that before, haven't I? Sorry. We shot away from that house like a bat out of hell. And for once, Martha didn't tell me to drive slowly and watch out for kids. You know, when I think about it, if we hadn't done all that kissing why we packed, we might have made it. If we hadn't been so in love at that very moment, we would have made it to the door before Bobby locked it. Before Junior started loading the arsenal. Before Susan punched little Victor the devil child in the nose. We almost made it to the main road leaving town when the first lightning blast erupted in the sky. I remember it, because it wasn't white. It was purple, but a deep, glowing, angry purple, as if the lightning bolt was pure electric amethyst. I'm sure that sounds a trifle flowery, but it's hard to describe. I wish you were from here. Then I wouldn't have to explain it. Anyway, that first lightning blast was a doozy. I remember it blinded me. After images of the purple glow flashed in front of my eyes as I drove the car off the road and into a ditch. We both had our seatbelts on, so neither of us were hurt, but the car wasn't going anywhere on its own. In retrospect, it might have been better for Martha if she just died in the crash. My vision finally cleared up, and I asked Martha if she was injured. She was shaken up but fine. The rain came down at that very second, not in a drizzle, mind you, but in big buckets, splashing at the window like we were parked in New Orleans during a hurricane. The wind shook us, as if the hand of God were playing with one of those matchbox cars that Victor likes so much. He's a good boy most of the time, I want you to know that. Except, of course, when it rains. We sat there, looking at each other, trying to calm down and come to grips with the bizarre situation when the lightning came again. Not a little single flash this time, but a big fireworks display of purple blasts. It lit up the car's interior like a strobe light. Those flashes, they affected me. They flashed in my brain. I could see them with my mind as well as my eyes. I know it sounds weird, but that's what anybody from here will tell you. Those flashes pulsed in my brain over and over again, over and over, but fast, like it all happened in a fraction of a second. And that's when the accident happened, when the purple lightning flashed in my brain. No gradual change, mind you, but an instantaneous thing. Bam, there I was. The lightning affects everybody a little different, I suppose. Some respond more than others. I turned to Martha. I felt different. Incredible. Alive. 
high as a kite, whatever you want to call it, I felt like I was in touch with a part of me that I'd lost years ago, perhaps lost before I was even born, which makes no sense, but that's the way it is. Something lost for thousands of years. I looked at her for the last time. She saw my eyes, and suddenly she was afraid, terrified. I can't say I blame her, but we were married for over 20 years, so that reaction surprised me to say the least. She was a smart woman, as I've told you before, and she didn't bother with all that screaming hullabaloo you always see in the movies. She just went for the door. She opened it, and rain instantly soaked her. That's how hard it was coming down, but that's as far as she got. I grabbed her by her hair and pulled her back in. I know I pulled her hard, because a clump of bloody hair came off into my hand. The good Lord just doesn't make bodies with durability in mind. She fell back into the seat and tried to get up right away to get out of the car. She wasn't going anywhere. I grabbed her forehead and slammed her back against the headrest. She tried to pull my hand away, but she was a small woman and she didn't have much strength. I, on the other hand, I felt stronger than I'd ever felt in my life. I pinned her head to the headrest, leaned forward, and locked my teeth around her throat. My first bite did the trick, I think, but I kept going at it anyway. Daddy always told Bobby and I that if you're going to do something, do it right. Her hot blood squirted all over my face and ran down my chest. Boy, but did she have a lot of blood. Like there was a faucet in her neck or something. She kicked and struggled, really represented herself well for a little 120-pound woman. Made me proud of her, she did. But in the end, she died. And we all have to move on. Because accidents happen. What do you look so scared for? Well, sure, it's a frightening story, but you've got nothing to be worried about. Don't see any storm clouds out there, do you? So just relax and let me finish. I remember getting out of the car and walking back to Bobby's house, which was only a few blocks away. The wind whipped at me and I was shivering and soaked to the bone. The rain washed Martha's blood from my face, although the redness still stained my white shirt. The lightning burst came again and again. A little boy, he was about ten, I think, he had an accident too. I saw him in the street, his little thumbs pushing into the eyes of a Dalmatian puppy that yelped over and over again with pitiful intensity. Well, what can you do? Dogs have accidents too, you know. The little boy was so fixated on his dog, he never heard me coming. That dog kicked and jumped, but the boy had him firmly. You know, to this day... I'm more saddened about the death of that puppy than I am about that little boy. Is that wrong? I know it's not the way I should think, but there it is anyways. The little boy saw me at the end, but it was too late, and I was on him. I grabbed his head with both hands and kneed him in the face. I remember this crunching noise. really sounded a lot like ripping a head of lettuce in half. I heard it even through the thunder and the rain and the wind. His treatment of the dog inspired me, so I poked the boy's eyes out with my thumbs. He squirmed, but he didn't cry. Even as I blinded him, as blood and jelly-like goo ran out of his sockets and under my hands, he tried to attack me. His parents would have been proud. Right up until the point where I put him in a headlock and threw him from side to side as hard as I could, until I heard this, this snap. He kept fighting. See this scar in the back of my hand? That's from his little nails. Some kid, eh? What a little trooper he was. I made it back to Bobby's place. Luckily, it was between bursts of lightning, so they just let me in. Junior blasted someone with a shotgun as I ran into the house. 
Apparently, a man was chasing me. Would have had me in another few seconds. I remember Junior screaming, How do you like me now, motherfucker? When he pulled that trigger. He must have shot the man six times. It was messy cleaning that up the next morning. A very messy accident. The man had one of those big fireman axes. That's not surprising, since the next morning we identified what was left of him as Frank Dresnick, who was a volunteer firefighter. Old Frank will be missed, I assure you. Everyone said he was a really nice guy. Well, after the storm died down, I felt just fine. Right as rain. Better than I'd ever felt. I was a little concerned about Martha and about the little boy, but Bobby told me that accidents happen. Don't worry about it, he told me, and I could hear the love and concern in his voice. We've all been caught outside in the rain before. Typhoons come up so often you can't always be prepared. It's happened to all of us. The whole family nodded, smiling at me with that wonderful glow back inside them yet again. They were all so understanding. After all, it was only an accident, you know, and they support me. I am family, after all. I felt so damn good after that storm, and hell, I still feel that way, that I never did leave Fender's Point. Maybe if Martha hadn't had that accident, we would have left, even after the storm. Martha and I would have seen America, driven right out to the West Coast and flown back home, uh, to... Where the hell did I say I was from again? Author's note for Iowa Typhoon. Normally, I write in third person. I wanted to dabble a little bit with first person, try a change of pace, and I wound up with Iowa Typhoon. This one is more old-school sci-fi than most of my stories. Old-school sci-fi as in, take an unexplained event, give it a tiny trapping of, quote, science, end quote, then have bad things happen to good people. You can probably see some Stephen King influence in the story. Small town, something awful is happening, and yet the residents don't really do anything about it because that awful thing isn't so awful to them. It's gory, it's throwback, and I think it's fun. Unless you were that little puppy, of course, then the story's kind of a pisser. Iowa Typhoon first saw print as a bonus story in the back of the original Ancestor trade paperback published by Dragon Moon Press in 2007. You have been listening to the Blood is Red serialized short story audiobook, written and performed by author Scott Sigler. This audiobook was produced by A. Kovacs and engineered by Ariok Morningstar. Theme music is the song Greed by Separation of Sanity. For more information on the author or to hear his free weekly fiction podcast, go to scottsigler.com. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. 
Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.